Our reading this afternoon comes from two places in the New Testament. First from the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So far from First Peter, let's also turn a few pages back to the letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4, and I think I made a small error in the uh, bulletin. Our text is only verse 4, but our reading will be verses 2 through 7. So Philippians 4, verse 2, I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the verse that we'll be especially focusing on is verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, when preaching, and and this is true of reading also, when working through the New Testament letters, you want to try your best to to divide them up into long, into single indivisible units, some of which will be long chunks of text, which are, are one single thought that takes time to work out, and some will be short little 
sentences. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do also with this letter. There are some texts that I have been taking that, that are long, and an example of that would be chapter 3 all the way through 1, one through verse 16 are all one long and, and fairly indivisible chunk of, of thought, a thought process that's only complete when you get to the end. And, and yet there's others, like this afternoon's text, that are just a single verse long. And that's especially as you get towards the end of Philippians, Paul's main points have, have been made and he wants to leave us with, with just a few final thoughts and they come in quick succession one after another. He doesn't have the time or the room perhaps to, to work them out in detail, so he leaves us with these final thoughts. And so what we want to do is we want to work through these, slowing down, taking them one by one, and working them out. And as we do that, we want to be asking primarily two questions. First, why do these things matter? These are Paul's final words to the Philippians, and he knew that they might very well be the, the final words he could ever say to, to this church that was very near and dear to his heart. And so these are his final words. Why does he feel it's so important to say these things and to leave them with, with these thoughts? And then secondly, then, what do these things look like in practice for us as a Christian church? And so that's also then our goal for this afternoon. Well, because verse 4 is such a well-known verse... It's, it's helpful to hear it again with fresh ears, to try and put yourselves in the shoes of the Philippians who are first hearing this verse, and to try and hear it for the first time again. It's good to, to recognize again how important it was for, for Paul, how important it was for, for the Philippians to hear this this command, and to really, really hear it, to think about it, to not just take it as an afterthought, but to take the time to think about what he's saying. That's why he words it the way he does in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He wants to drive the point home. It's as if he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Seriously, I mean it. Rejoice. He wants to make sure that they've, they've heard him. They didn't just let that command go in one ear and out the other. And so we want to ask then, why is it so important for Paul that the Philippians be a rejoicing church? Why does it matter so much? What difference does it ultimately make? And to highlight the importance of joy in this letter... Let's also remember that this, this letter to the Philippians, uh, just like the letter to the Thessalonians, are two of the most joy-saturated letters, and they're written to two of the most uh, small congregations, but also most healthy congregations. Some of the other ones, like Corinth and Galatia, had major issues that Paul was writing to them about, and you find joy in those letters, but you find primarily instruction but here you have a healthy, a small but healthy church that's very committed to Paul's mission. And those letters to Philippians and Thessalonians are saturated with joy. Just walk through 
the letter of Philippians with me real quick. If you look at Philippians 1 verse 4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. Philippians 1 verse 18, he says, What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. And then he says it again, Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 25, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy. So he says, my purpose of remaining with you and ministering to you is ultimately for your joy. Again, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 2 verse 14, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. So that's, that's the opposite of joy. He says, avoid that complaining and disputing that ultimately robs you of your joy. Verse 17, he, he says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Again, the very next verse, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 2 verse 28, speaking about Epaphroditus, he, he says, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice again. 2 verse 29, he says, So receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Again, rejoicing. 3 verse 1, it's almost the exact same verse as our text. He says, Find me, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 4 verse 1, he says, Therefore, my, my beloved and longed for brothers, brethren, my joy and my crown. Then you have verse 4, our text, and, and jump ahead also to verse 10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So this whole letter, every single chapter is just saturated from beginning to end with joy. For Paul, the Christian experience is distinctly marked by joy. Now there's an important qualifier to that joy, and it's there in several of the verses that I recited, and that is the joy that marks the Christian life is joy in the Lord. That's in our text in, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's there in 3 verse 1. He says, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And, and that distinction matters. The command here is not just be happy or try to have a positive outlook. Now he gives a command to rejoice together with the reason for rejoicing, a specific and a worthy reason to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. There's nothing more valuable 
than your identity in Christ. There's no greater treasure that you have, no greater reason that you have for rejoicing than who you are in Christ. So the command is rejoice and let that be your reason for rejoicing. Keep your eyes on who you are in Christ. Don't let that slip from your mind and let that ultimately soak through your soul and come out through your body in rejoicing. And I, and I specifically say it that way, soaking through your soul and coming out in your body because joy, joy is ultimately something that belongs to the soul. Joy is distinct that way from happiness. Happiness exists on, on the surface and, and it might be a manifestation of joy or it might sometimes not. But it's entirely possible to have joy without experiencing or feeling happiness. Happiness is something that belongs more to the surface and to the body. Joy belongs deep in the soul. It's rooted in the soul's deepest loves and and greatest hopes. You you think of how Paul talks in in 2 Corinthians 6 of how we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful on the surface because of the brokenness and the suffering we experience and yet at the same time rejoicing in the soul. That is the Christian experience. Weeping, experiencing brokenness in this life, experiencing great sorrow in our hearts and yet at the same time at at an even deeper level because of the hope that we have also rejoicing in the Lord. And we can see something of what it means then to rejoice in the Lord if we also reflect on Paul's words in in chapter 3 here verse 8. He says in in chapter 3 verse 8, Indeed I count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see the joy behind that? Yes, I lose all things. I, I count them as loss. I even count them as rubbish because I have something far, far greater that I want to gain. If knowing Christ has such surpassing worth, and it does, and if gaining Christ is worth the loss of all things, and it is, then then we who know Christ, who, who have gained Him, have far more reason to rejoice than anybody else in the world. We have the greatest reason of all for rejoicing. The Lord Jesus Himself said it also. You might think of His parable in Matthew 13 of, uh, of the treasure hidden in the field. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy, He says, He went and sold all that He had in order that He could gain that field. 
He's rejoicing because he knows that the thing he's about to gain is worth far, far more than anything he's about to lose in order to gain that. So the exhortation here to rejoice is in essence an exhortation to remember what you are about to gain, what you have already gained, and what you are also soon to gain in eternal life. And then to let that knowledge bring joy to your souls and ultimately then to your bodies. So Paul's command and and exhortation is rejoice in the Lord. And it's important to remember that that in the Lord. It's possible he he felt the need to say this one more time. He'd already made the point in in chapter 3 verse 1. But maybe he felt the need to say this once more after exhorting the the two ladies in in verse 2. Because he says then in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. If you just think about that, when, when two brothers or sisters in the church whose names are written in the book of life, when they find themselves embroiled in, in some kind of dispute or division in the church, then it's, it's very possible that they've forgotten their joy in the Lord. They've forgotten to rejoice again. And they have every reason to do so. After all, their names are written in the book of life. They will share eternity in heaven together. You might also think of what the Lord Jesus once told his disciples uh, when, when, some, when, they ca- when they were able to cast out demons. He said, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. That's a, that's a small circumstantial thing. He said, instead, rejoice that your names are written in, in heaven. So Paul then exhorts these these two sisters and the whole congregation with them one last time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. So the question we want to ask then is why is it so important to Paul that they be a rejoicing church? Why does he underscore this throughout his letter and then take the time to to repeat it one more time here in 4 verse 4? Well, let me give two reasons why Paul saw this as as essential that they understand that they must be a rejoicing church. The first reason is joy preserves us. Joy preserves us in our faith. The command to rejoice is ultimately a command to remember the things that we have reason for rejoicing in. To remember the worth of Christ that we are about to gain and to then be shaped by by that hope. Uh, And you think about it, as as Paul is, is writing to the Philippians, his greatest concern for them is that they would not lose sight of the main thing. You see that over and over again in in Philippians. Uh, He's reminding them to, to keep their eyes fixed on the main 
thing, to not be drawn away by disputes or divisions, but to stay focused on the hope that they have. There's going to be many things after Paul is gone, many things that will pull at their attention and and you'll have doctrinal challenges from the outside, you'll have divisions from the inside and what's going to keep their eyes focused on Christ? It is rejoicing in Him day after day, remembering the joy that they have. Joy has an effect of preserving us in our faith. And so then Paul exhorts the Philippians, above everything else, rejoice in the Lord. It will keep you safe. A deliberate and and a focused effort to rejoice in the Lord causes us then to keep our eyes fixed on, on His surpassing worth, on the incomparable prize of all that we have to gain. And that keeps us from being pulled aside into silly disputes and controversies and selfish divisions. So making a deliberate daily effort to find our joy again in the Lord and remind ourselves of the joy we have in the Lord, it has an effect of ultimately preserving us as as a church. George Mueller, an evangelist and a founder of many schools and orphanages, he once said, "The, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That Happiness is, as I mentioned, happiness is the external manifestation of of inward, inside joy. And so making that a deliberate daily practice has an effect of preserving the core of our faith. Enlarging that joy has an effect then of increasing that faith and strengthening that faith in the Lord. So then Paul exhorts the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord because that will have the effect of preserving them as a Christian church and keeping them on course. Division, doctrinal uh, vulnerability, uh, rivalry within the church, all of those things breed in a heart that has forgotten its joy in the Lord. Secondly, Paul wants them to rejoice because joy in the Lord magnifies the worth of Christ. If there's anything that Paul loved even more than the Philippian church, it was the honor of the name of Christ himself. That was his deepest concern. You might look at chapter 1 verse 20 where he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's life purpose, to honor, or you could say to magnify the worth of the name of Christ. And nothing nothing honors the name of Christ and nothing shows Christ's worth more than Christians who are rejoicing in Him, especially in the midst of trials and sufferings. Nothing shows how worthy, how valuable Christ is more than Christians who daily rejoice in Him. 
The Philippians themselves would have had a chance to, to witness this when Paul first came to Philippi. And if you remember your history well, he, he, he and Silas were arrested and then they were tied up and, and whipped and then thrown into prison. And the Philippian jailer found them singing hymns with thanks to God. Now I don't know that they sang those hymns with smiles on their faces. It's entirely possible that the pain in their bodies and even the sadness on their hearts might have prevented them from singing those those songs and hymns with with smiles on their faces. But perhaps they were there singing with that, that same grit and determination that many of the reformers sang their hymns as they went tied to the stake to be burned, still determined whether they felt like it or not to rejoice in the Lord. They had that sort of dead earnest and purpose that they in their sufferings will rejoice in the Lord. And so their singing, whether they felt like it or not, their singing was then a manifestation of the inward joy that they had because they had their identity in Christ. The singing showed for the Philippians Paul and Silas's total conviction that, that what they had in Christ was worth whatever they might be suffering in jail or tied up or whatever else they might face. So nothing demonstrates and proves the beauty and the worth of Christ more than Christians who know how to rejoice in Him, to show their joy, and to show that everything they endure is worth what they will ultimately inherit. And this, this just as an aside, this is why the, the prosperity gospel or, or even a prosperity-based approach to Christianity is so dishonoring to Christ. If we tell people, come and join our church because you know, life is good here and, and Christ will help you fulfill your potential or, or realize your dreams, none of that does anything to actually honor Christ that serves to honor your potential or to serve or serves to honor your dreams but it doesn't serve to honor Christ and of course it will ultimately be very disappointing when Christians realize that that the Christian life is very much full of suffering what serves to magnify and honor Christ is rejoicing in him for his own sake rejoicing in what we're inheriting in him not what he might bring us here on earth. So Paul urges the Philippians again, rejoice in the Lord because doing so will preserve them as a Christian church and will serve ultimately to magnify the worth of Christ. And so brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate the point also for you of taking Paul's exhortation here to heart. Rejoicing in the Lord begins by spending time in God's Word. Spending time reflecting on the many reasons that we have to rejoice in Christ. And I'm not talking here about, about counting our blessings here on earth, though that, that's certainly important, but specifically reflecting on the blessings that we have in Christ. Reflecting on all that we will inherit in Christ. That should give us many reasons to, to rejoice. Are we prepared to lose everything like Paul was in order to gain Christ? 
Are we prepared if we're called to do that? If not, then perhaps we've forgotten the blessings that we have in Christ. If You might think if the man in, in Jesus' parable who had found that treasure in the field, if he suddenly had second thoughts about selling everything that he had to, to buy that field, well, the only reason would be because he had forgotten what a great treasure he had buried in that field. And the same is true for us. If we're no longer sure that we're ready to give up everything in order to gain Christ, then we've forgotten how, how valuable, how precious Christ actually is. So then, brothers and sisters, take that exhortation to heart. Rejoice and rejoice in the Lord. Remember what hope you have. Remember how worthy He is to rejoice in. And again, this is not at all a command to, to just be more uh, chipper. It's not a command to, to try and just be more positive. It's actually not even a command to, to just feel happier. Indeed, if you, if you were to approach happiness from that angle, that sort of, uh, I choose to be happy, that might work for, for some people, but that might not even be possible for many of you here. Joy is, is much deeper than, than happiness. And joy in the Lord is that, that indomitable, irrepressible hope, that, that gladness of spirit that comes from knowing who you are in Christ even if you don't feel much happiness on the surface, it's holding on to that hope that gives you reason to, to rejoice. So joy in the Lord comes then from knowing who we are, knowing what we have being counted together with Christ, and then experiencing that daily more and more, and, and setting that before us again at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day, setting that before us again. This is what I have in Christ. This is what I will inherit, and this is my reason for rejoicing. Now again, for many Christians, that, that pursuit of happiness might be a constantly evasive pursuit that never seems to arrive at its goal. And for many Christians, I'm sure many also here in our midst, Many Christians experience that, that numbness that, that comes with depression and then when they encounter a command like this, rejoice in the Lord, it almost comes across as, as an accusatory command. Aren't you rejoicing? Why can't you rejoice is how many of us hear an exhortation like that. But we shouldn't hear Paul that way at all. We shouldn't take the exhortation like that. This command is not a command to just be more upbeat and happy. It's a command to remember where your hope lies, to remember what your reasons are for rejoicing. You might think of the, the psalmist in Psalm 42 who writes as he's in the, in the middle of that experience of that, that numbness which he describes as a dry wilderness. He says, my soul, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet Praise Him, my Savior and my God. He says, my soul is downcast within me, and therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. 
The psalmist does not say, put your hope in God and, and then those feelings of being downcast will, will just go away. No, he knows better than that. He speaks from the midst of that fog, from the midst of that sadness and downcastness of spirit that he acknowledges is there. He says, put your hope in God for I will yet praise him. The day will come, even if it isn't here now, that I will praise him again. Though my soul might be downcast right now, though I may find myself powerless now in this dry wilderness to change that, the day will still come when I will praise him again. And so I say to my soul, put your hope in him. The day will come when you will rejoice in him again. That's what Paul means when he says, rejoice in the Lord. Remember where your hope lies. Fix your eyes on that hope and hold on to that hope so that that hope will at least one day bring you that joy that you're waiting for. That's what Paul means when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a call to set their hope before them again with all of its immeasurable worth. And the daily deliberate practice of setting that hope before you for many Christians does already here on earth bring with it that supernatural joy that Paul himself demonstrated so many times even in this letter saying even though I suffer even though my body may die here in Rome yet I will rejoice and so the, the daily practice of doing that brings for most Christians, for many Christians at least, that supernatural joy which can only be of the Spirit. That joy which comes from knowing where their hope lies. And it's a kind of joy that can defy even the worst hardships. That persists even with its brokenness and its interruptions. It still persists even in the worst of, of, of brokenness and darkness and, and hardships like those that Paul experienced. And so then, brothers and sisters, take this exhortation to heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Cultivate that joy by remembering the hope that you have. By remembering the inheritance that you have. The, the brokenness that we experience on the, on the 20 to 80 years that we might have on this earth is such a short time of brokenness. It's not worthy to be compared with the joy that we have in store for us because we are counted together with Christ. Let that joy then preserve you and let that joy also be your witness to show the world the, insurpassing, uh, the, the unsurpassed worth of Christ your Savior. Amen.